Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2011 issue. Let's get started. The challenge of accurately diagnosing neurodegenerative disease is the first topic in the February issue. It's an important topic, too. Up to 18.5 million people worldwide will develop a neurodegenerative disease by the year 2050. Yet oftentimes, patients with this disease are wrongly given a psychiatric diagnosis. This usually happens because the disease has a psychiatric prodrome, or in some cases, neuropsychiatric symptoms of the neurodegenerative disease are mistaken for those of a primary psychiatric disorder. Previous research on the extent to which patients receive psychiatric diagnoses prior to a final diagnosis of neurodegenerative disease has been inadequate and risk factors for such cases remain poorly understood. In an effort to quantify and characterize rates of psychiatric diagnosis in patients with various forms of neurodegenerative disease, the authors of this study conducted a chart review that covered a nine-year period and included 252 patients with neurodegenerative disease. Their results showed that 28% of the patients had received a prior psychiatric diagnosis, depression being the most common. Patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia received a prior psychiatric diagnosis significantly more often than patients with Alzheimer's disease, semantic dementia, or progressive non-fluent aphasia and they were more likely to receive a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia than were patients with other neurodegenerative diseases. The authors conclude that because of the symptom overlap between psychiatric diseases and neurodegenerative diseases, physicians should consider referral to a specialist to rule out neurodegenerative disease in patients over 40 years of age who present with new-onset behavioral, emotional, or cognitive changes. Turning to the next article. The social stigma surrounding the use of psychiatric medications is explored in college students, a group who seems to straddle the line that separates negative attitudes and acceptance of the drugs. While a significant number of students hold negative associations about the use of such drugs, a rise in the use of psychiatric medications has been observed. Unfortunately, the increase in use has coincided with a growing popularity on college campuses for the drug's misuse and abuse. The authors of this article sought to explore students' attitudes and experiences related to psychiatric medication as well as the correlates of psychiatric medication misuse. Identification of such correlates could help identify the students most likely to misuse the drugs. The authors used a self-report questionnaire to gather information from 383 university students regarding their attitudes about psychiatric medication. After they compiled the data, the authors indeed found that the rate of psychiatric medication misuse was high 
and students with prescription for psychiatric drugs were more likely than those without psychiatric prescriptions to be misusers. As a group, the misusers held favorable attitudes towards psychiatric medications and the drug's ability to promote recovery from mental illness. The results overall point to the need for improved education regarding the nature of mental illness, the appropriate use of psychiatric medications, and the potential consequences associated with abuse of these potent drugs. Oral health care in patients with schizophrenia is the topic of the next article. This is an often disregarded issue, but it is worthy of attention as up to half of patients with schizophrenia never brush their teeth and few receive regular dental care. To make matters worse, psychotropic medication commonly causes dry mouth, which can lead to oral health problems. Poor oral health can exacerbate problems of an already disadvantaged patient group by increasing the risk for additional social stigmatization and potentially fatal infections. With the aim of identifying predictors of poor dental health in schizophrenia patients, the authors of this study used a Danish database to examine the dental care received by roughly 20,000 patients. They found that only 43% of the patients with schizophrenia visited a dentist during a one-year period, and only 31% of these patients complied with a regular annual dental checkup during a three-year period. Predictors of one-year non-adherence included substance abuse diagnosis, living in an institution, and admission to a psychiatric facility for a minimum of 30 days. Some of the variables that were associated with lower risk of poor dental care were clozapine treatment, atypical antipsychotic treatment, and patients over 50 years. The authors conclude that mental health professionals should be alert to their patients' oral health needs and encourage them to visit their dentists regularly. They should also collaborate with dentists to improve the dental health aspects of this disadvantaged patient group. The National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions continues to provide a wellspring of information. Another group of research, as the authors of our next article, has mined the epidemiologic survey with an important goal of determining the incident rates of mood, anxiety, and substance use disorders in older adults, a largely untapped area of research. One reason this group has been largely unreported in incident studies is that it's commonly believed that most disorders begin in or before early adulthood, and that the new onset of non-cognitive psychiatric disorders in old age is rare. However, a consequence of this belief is that clinically significant and potentially treatable psychiatric disorders may be overlooked. To help bridge this need, the authors aim not only to determine the incident rates of mood, anxiety, and substance use disorders, but also identify sociodemographic, psychopathological, health-related, and stress-related predictors of onset of these disorders. The authors looked at a nationally representative sample of over 8,000 adults who were over 60 years of age. 
They interviewed them twice in a three-year period to assess first incidents of mood, anxiety, and substance use disorders. Results show that mood, anxiety, and substance use disorders were highest for nicotine dependence and major depressive disorder, and lowest for drug use disorder and bipolar II disorder. Incidence rates were significantly greater among older women for major depressive disorder and among older men for nicotine dependence and alcohol abuse and dependence. Post-traumatic stress disorder predicted incidence of a host of disorders, including major depressive disorder, panic disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. The authors conclude that more information is needed about disorders that are common in late life and about the risk factors for the onset of psychiatric disorders among older adults. This information will be important for developing effective early intervention and prevention initiatives. Turning to the next article. For years, physicians have debated whether antidepressants are effective for the acute treatment of bipolar disorder. Conclusive evidence for either side of the debate has been elusive. Reports have shown that some antidepressant medications can destabilize mood by inducing an effective switch to mania or hypomania, yet others have shown no such association. Some studies have suggested that antidepressant treatment may exacerbate disease severity by increasing cycle frequency, but many of these trials suffer from bias or lack of adequate control groups to demonstrate causation. In 2004, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials concluded that antidepressants were effective and safe for acute treatment of bipolar depression. However, Several trials published since then suggest that the drugs may not be as beneficial as previously concluded. The two authors of the article in this February issue seek to add clarity to this conundrum by performing a systematic review and meta-analysis of antidepressants used for acute treatment of bipolar disorder. Their aim was to combine trials from the 2004 meta-analysis with randomized controlled trials published in the years following it, which produced 15 studies containing over 2,000 patients. The authors conclude that although antidepressants were found to be safe for the acute treatment of bipolar depression, their lack of efficacy may limit their clinical utility. They add that further high-quality studies are required to address the existing limitations in the literature. The journal's next feature looks at the physical safety of cognitive behavioral therapy that uses imaginal exposure in patients who have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder following a life-threatening cardiovascular event. Imaginal exposure is a process in which patients re-experience a stressful event through the use of imagination. Though this process may theoretically lead to cardiovascular compromise because of the distressing nature of the exercise, the authors believe it would be regrettable to forego this treatment because of a theoretical but unproven concern that it might be harmful. To address this concern, however, the authors conducted a phase one safety study in which outpatients with post-traumatic stress disorder were recruited and randomly assigned into two groups. 
one group received several sessions of imaginal exposure therapy, and another group received a lesser number of educational sessions only. Safety of the therapy and the effects of the treatment on post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms were investigated. The study results proved favorable for the safety of cognitive behavioral therapy that includes imaginal exposure. The authors assert that cardiovascular patients should not be deprived of exposure-based approaches because of safety concerns. The authors also found that treatment of post-traumatic stress with the therapy holds promise for patients with cardiovascular illnesses who are traumatized by their illness. The results, they claim, provide an anchor for future studies that would conclusively examine the efficacy of exposure-based treatments in medically ill patients. The authors of the next article study the lifetime prevalence of mood and anxiety disorders in a population of adults with the fragile X premutation with particular interest in individuals with the neurodegenerative disorder Fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome. All study subjects had the fragile X premutation and were divided into two groups. Those who did and those who did not have fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome. Lifetime prevalence for mood and anxiety disorders among carriers with and without this fragile X syndrome was compared to available age-specific population estimates. The authors found that among those with the fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome, 65% of the participants had a lifetime mood disorder and just over half had a lifetime anxiety disorder. Among those without the syndrome, 42% had lifetime mood disorder and nearly half had lifetime anxiety disorder. The authors conclude that mood and anxiety disorders may be part of the clinical phenotype of the fragile X premutation conditions, especially in carriers with the fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome. Clinicians encountering these patients should consider the fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome as a neuropsychiatric syndrome as well as a neurologic disorder. Let's move on to the next article. Clinicians and biological researchers have long recognized the importance of stability of psychiatric diagnoses over time. Among the psychiatric categories, psychotic disorders may be especially unstable. Factors that contribute to instability include insufficient or potentially unreliable information used to make the diagnosis, especially if elicited only from patients, and symptoms that may be unclear initially or emerge later in the illness. The authors assert that it is highly desirable that initial standardized syndromal diagnoses remain stable over the long term or follow predictable courses. It is therefore important to test diagnostic stability by systematic and prospective assessment, if only to document levels of longitudinal congruence of specific diagnoses and to identify early predictors of later diagnostic change. 
The researchers of this article evaluated over a two-year period the diagnostic stability of a broad range of initially considered psychotic disorders based on the ICD-10 criteria among 500 patients who were hospitalized for first psychotic illnesses. They also evaluated predictors of diagnostic change. They found that schizoaffective disorder had very high stability and acute schizophrenia-like psychosis had low stability over the two-year period. After 24 months of follow-up, nearly 40% of diagnoses changed to schizoaffective disorder followed by bipolar disorder at 25%. Regarding predictors, they found that any Schneiderian first-rank symptoms and lack of an earlier substance use disorder diagnosis were independently associated with diagnostic change. The authors concluded that stability of some psychotic disorder diagnoses were more often found with the ICD-10 criteria than with DSM-IV criteria. They encourage continued efforts to devise diagnostic methods and criteria to identify patients with psychotic disorders of favorable course as early as possible, if only to avoid unnecessarily pessimistic prognoses and overuse of antipsychotic medications and other costly or risky interventions. Our next article is by John Kane and colleagues who have added needed data to the literature on head-to-head efficacy comparisons of second-generation antipsychotics in patients with treatment-resistant schizophrenia. In this work, they give their results for a double-blind, randomized study of Certindol and Risperidone. Certindol, a non-sedating antipsychotic, effective against positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia, has been considered to have a low risk for extra-pyramidal symptoms. Such benefits may prove the drug an attractive treatment option, especially since the advantages of the second-generation antipsychotics over the conventional antipsychotics in terms of efficacy are still under debate. The authors examined 217 subjects who were randomized to risperidone or certindol treatment for 12 weeks. They found no significant differences between the two treatments, and both groups showed improvement on psychiatric rating scales. The authors conclude that certindol and risperidone were both beneficial in patients with treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Both drugs have a good safety profile and are well-tolerated. Because patients with schizophrenia are a heterogeneous group, a real need exists for an array of antipsychotic medications, as the individual response is not predictable. The authors believe that Certindol offers another valuable treatment option for refractory patients. Now, let's look at our next feature, which examines approaches to treatment of schizophrenia after acute treatment of the first illness episode. Maintenance treatment is recommended for at least a year after the illness episode. What remains unclear, though, is the best way to treat patients after the first year. Targeted intermittent treatment has been found to be less effective than continuous treatment at preventing relapse in multiple episode patients. But other evidence has shown comparable efficacy of the two treatment approaches in first episode patients. To add clarity to the issue... 
The authors of the next article designed a study to prospectively compare how well further maintenance treatment and targeted intermittent treatment performed in preventing illness relapse in patients with first-episode schizophrenia. They conducted a randomized control trial in which 44 stable first-episode patients who had completed a year of antipsychotic treatment were randomly assigned to 12 months of further maintenance treatment or stepwise drug discontinuation and targeted intermittent treatment. During the study treatment, the researchers measured the patient's rate of relapse. The authors found that the rate of relapse were significantly higher in patients receiving intermittent treatment than in those receiving maintenance treatment. However, quality of life scores were comparable between the two groups, and intermittent treatment patients received a significantly lower amount of antipsychotics and tended to show fewer side effects. The authors conclude that maintenance treatment is the preferred treatment option given its comparably low rate of relapse. However, because the results also showed benefits in intermittent treatment and the insistence of some patients to discontinue drug treatment, the authors believe that a need exists for alternative treatment strategies to maintenance treatment. One of these could include targeted intermittent treatment. Some authors have argued that fibromyalgia may be secondary to major depressive disorder, for it is well known that patients with major depressive disorder often complain of back muscle and various other forms of pain, all of which in part characterize fibromyalgia. Some work has been done to better understand the relationship between the two illnesses. Researchers have shown an association between fibromyalgia and lowered pain thresholds and deficient pain inhibition. Similarly, it has been recently proposed that the proneness of patients with major depressive disorder to develop chronic pain also results from a deficit in pain inhibition. The authors of this next study have generated results that contribute to the need to determine the exact relationship between these two disorders. They designed a cross-sectional study to investigate the potential similarities and differences in experimentally induced pain perception and pain inhibition between patients with major depressive disorder and patients with fibromyalgia. The study included three groups, a group of 29 patients with fibromyalgia, a group of 26 patients with major depressive disorder, and a group of 40 healthy controls. The authors found that among the three groups, healthy controls had significantly higher thermal pain thresholds. Pain ratings were lower in healthy controls in patients with major depressive disorder relative to the patients with fibromyalgia. The authors conclude that fibromyalgia and major depressive disorders are both associated with signs of hyperalgesia, that hyperalgesia is more pronounced in fibromyalgia, and the deficit of pain inhibition is specific to fibromyalgia. Now let's look at our next article by Michael Compton and colleagues. They report on a study that examines predictors and clinical correlates of duration of untreated psychosis, 
which is generally defined as the interval from onset of psychotic symptoms to initiation of treatment and duration of untreated illness, which represents the interval from emergence of any symptoms to initiation of treatment for psychosis. The authors note that substantial evidence associates duration of untreated psychosis with adverse early course outcomes. However, remarkably little is known about determinants of duration of untreated psychosis. Given the burden imposed by untreated psychosis on individuals, families, and society, knowledge of predictors of treatment delay is crucial. To that aim, the authors examined 109 first-episode hospitalized patients living in an urban, socially disadvantaged community. The patients were measured for duration of untreated psychosis, duration of untreated illness, and a number of clinical and psychosocial variables. The study was driven by two primary objectives. First, predictors of duration of untreated psychosis, and second, cross-sectional correlates of both duration of untreated psychosis and duration of untreated illness were studied. The authors found several key findings. One was that, contrary to the author's expectation, poor premorbid academic and social functioning did not predict longer duration of untreated psychosis. Another surprising finding was that living with family members prior to hospitalization was associated with a longer duration of untreated psychosis. Regarding clinical correlates of durations of untreated psychosis and illness, the finding that greater negative symptoms were associated with longer duration of untreated psychosis was consistent with prior research. The authors conclude that there is a need for early intervention efforts to be directed to families, particularly families facing major socioeconomic challenges. Acute stress disorder is the topic of our next article. The author of this piece, Dr. Richard Bryant, presents a systematic review of the literature with the goal of providing material for the ongoing discussions concerning the definitions of post-traumatic stress disorder in the upcoming DSM-5. He notes that acute stress disorder diagnosis was introduced in DSM-4 for two reasons, one being to describe acute stress reactions that occur in the initial month after trauma exposure, which enables trauma survivors to receive mental health care, and the second reason being to identify trauma survivors who are at high risk for developing subsequent post-traumatic stress disorder. The body of research on acute stress disorder has greatly expanded since the disorder's introduction. In Dr. Bryan's review, he provides a synthesis of all published prospective studies of acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder in order to determine the utility of the acute stress disorder diagnosis as a description of acute stress responses and the capacity of acute stress disorder diagnosis to identify trauma survivors who will subsequently develop post-traumatic stress disorder. For each of the 22 studies he selected, the capacity of the acute stress disorder diagnosis 
to predict post-traumatic stress disorder was calculated in terms of sensitivity, specificity, and positive and negative predictive power. In his synthesis of data, Dr. Bryant found that in terms of prediction, the acute stress disorder diagnosis had reasonable positive predictive power, but the sensitivity was poor. He concludes that the acute stress disorder diagnosis does not adequately identify the majority of people who will eventually develop post-traumatic stress disorder. He closes his article with a section that contributes to the discussions concerning the definitions of post-traumatic stress disorders in DSM-5. In it, he says, there is a need to formally describe acute stress reactions, but this goal may be achieved more usefully by describing the broad range of initial reactions rather than attempting to predict subsequent post-traumatic stress disorder. Our February issue closes with an article that questions the growing use of second-generation antipsychotics in patients with bipolar disorder. The authors discuss various factors that have contributed to the increased popularity of second-generation antipsychotic polytherapy among clinicians. But this rise in use has occurred in spite of an absence of data to support the safety, tolerability, or efficacy of these drugs. To help fill this void of information, the authors conducted a study in which they sought to evaluate the safety and tolerability of second-generation antipsychotic polytherapy compared to second-generation antipsychotic monotherapy in bipolar patients. They studied a longitudinal cohort of nearly 2,000 bipolar disorder patients who received open naturalistic treatment in the Systematic Treatment Enhancement Program for Bipolar Disorder, commonly referred to as STEP-BD. The patients were prescribed at least one second-generation antipsychotic and were assessed at least quarterly for approximately two years. Results showed that compared to patients who received second-generation antipsychotic monotherapy, second-generation antipsychotic polytherapy patients had higher rates of adverse effects, including dry mouth, tremor, sedation, sexual dysfunction, and constipation, and they were almost three times as likely to incur more psychiatric and medical care. Also, no association was shown that signaled advantages of second-generation antipsychotic polytherapy over monotherapy in terms of improved global functioning or days spent well. The authors conclude that their results suggest that the associated disadvantages of second-generation antipsychotic polytherapy are substantial. They call on researchers to fill a clear need by conducting randomized controlled trials to definitively assess polytherapy compared to monotherapy with second-generation antipsychotics. In the interim, though, Clinicians should carefully keep in mind second-generation antipsychotic polytherapies disadvantages when considering such interventions in their patients. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find an academic highlights on the recognition and assessment of shift work disorder, continuing medical education activities, the ASCP column featuring Marlene Freeman's views on omega-3 fatty acids and depression, book reviews, and letters from the February 2011 issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. 
This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me in March for the next Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.